Welcome to episode five of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We have a great topic we're covering today. I am joined by my co-hosts as usual, John Jarvis, Owen Rice, Brian Connolly. And today we are going to be discussing the role of a company's Department of Real Estate, the decisions that they have to make and recommend to their respective organizations, and how that role and how the department has changed over the last five years. Uh, but first, before we dive into that, we're going to be covering some of the major news stories out of the last couple of weeks. Brian, I know you've got a story you want to start with, so why don't you lead us off? Yeah, thanks, Tucker. I Yeah, the story is, it's pretty interesting. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. So the world's largest four-day work week trial just concluded, and the study is groundbreaking. It is It, it looked at about 3,000 workers. It overwhelmingly has positive results on on the employee and quite frankly the success and revenue of the company has all gone up so um, you know the the study is done by an organization that is focused on transitioning the workforce to a four-day work week so you know there could be some bias in the in the study but would love to get your thoughts do people think that you know this is the next evolution of kind of work from home or the return to the office will just shorten the work week, make everybody hyper efficient because you need to, to get a, to get a 20% reduction in the workforce uh, or the work day or work week, I should say, you need to get a 25% increase in the efficiency of the day. Right. So Tucker, take, take us away. What are your thoughts here? Okay. So a couple of questions. First, are these people working longer hours? Like, does it say that in the study? Are they working uh, like 40 hours a week? They're just doing it over four days instead of five days? Or is it just a actual reduction in the number of hours worked? It doesn't get into that detail, but I think there's, I think it, it alludes to there being longer, longer hours. Yeah. People have to work more efficiently um, over those four days, but I don't think it's a 40 hour work week. It's, it's moving away from the 40 hour work week. That's the point. One, one thing that I think is, is funny is uh, it's been very well studied that there is a point of diminishing returns where each additional hour you work is less productive than the last. It's been very well studied. But so many people have run with this idea that, oh, you're less productive working more hours than less. And it's like each incremental hour is less productive, but you're still getting more and more done the more hours that you work. And somehow it's been misconstrued where I really believe a lot of people are like, work smarter, not harder, not realizing that if you're working hard and you're working smart and you're working a lot of hours, that's way better than working less hours. So I'm very skeptical of these four day work week um, companies. Like, I don't think that you're going to see some high growth, really complicated, hard to build company built with people working four days a week. I think it takes seven days a week or six days a week to build those types of companies. And that it is possible for organizations that are at maturity that have um, challenges retaining employees and all that. It is possible that the net productivity loss is offset by the productivity gains of having less turnover, uh, you know, higher employee retention on all that. But like, I'll, I'll go out and say very strongly, I don't think you're, we're ever going to see a zero to one or like zero to $10 billion market cap company built on a four day work week. It just, it's not going to happen. Like it requires hard work to build things that are intense and, um, in, you know, impressive to build. I got to say, I'm just scratching my head at this four day work week concept. I, uh, appreciate you sharing the article, Brian, you know, my, my gut level reaction is to think really, I mean, after we've gone through this pandemic, we went fully remote, we've come back, we've had all this conversation around hybrid and about employee choice about, you know, maybe first couple hours of productive work from home on a particular day. And the end result is we're going to give everybody a three day weekend. <laughs> that, I mean, that's just, that's not it. I mean, I, I, I see coming out of this, we've learned to be flexible on the margin that we're actually providing greater productivity. We're probably working more hours because we're not spending time in the commuter traffic to try and simplify it down to a four day work week. I don't think that's the end game from all this. I think it's just going to come down to who wants it the most. And so there might be companies that go to that four day work week and maybe they're fine with marginal results if that's what a four day work week yields. Um, but to Tucker's point, I find it hard to believe that a company committing to five days of work 
no matter where that work is done. So office space aside for this conversation, I find it hard to believe that some other company working an entire day less is going to get as much done. Um, and rather, I think they're going to get far less done. And maybe they're okay with that. I don't, I don't begin to suggest how a CEO runs his or her company, but I just find it inconceivable as to how it could possibly work if, again, the goal is to maximize revenue um, and, and increase profitability for shareholders. And then furthermore, think about shareholders. What if you're a shareholder, shareholder of a company um, and all of a sudden you get an announcement that that company is going to four days a week? How do you feel as an investor? Let's go back to Brian on this because, you know, I don't think he brought it up for all four of us to say, hey, this is a stupid idea. Uh, you know, I haven't read this article. Brian, I'm sure has if he's bringing it up. I mean, Brian, like, what's this article saying? I mean, surely the punchline of this article is not a bunch of companies tried a four day work week and it sucked and none of them are doing it anymore. <laughs> I bet some of these people found success and are now doing it in the long run. So what are the takeaways? What are what do you think we're missing here? that, you know, is, is contradictory to what the article says? Yeah, good, good question, Tucker. The, the 61, there were 61 companies in the study, over 90% of the companies have determined that they're going to continue with this four-day week, right? So I think, I think my perspective on it is that the U.S. perspective of what work is and what's important, the study was done in the U.K., and it, it mirrors some smaller studies done in the U.S. and I think Australia. But our perspective on work is very different than the Europeans. And it's very different than, I think, too, than the youngest generation coming into the workforce. Work is not something that they want to be doing, the Europeans or the young generation, 80 hours a week. I mean, they want, to be, they want that balance to be much closer to 50-50, right, where we're, we're happy working you know, 80 hours in a five or six day work week with very little personal time. That's not the, the way it is in Europe. And that's not the way it is, I think, as a younger generation, which this study is starting to point out. And there's one interesting piece. There's a company in here that has saw a drastic increase in the number of applicants trying to work at this company. So they're going to get the best talent if the, as they continue moving with the four day work week. So I mean, it's food for thought. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't know that I agree that they're going to get the best talent. I think that there's a self-selection bias that goes into people that want to work at a company working four days a week. Like, for example, I have no interest in working with a bunch of people that don't work hard. That's a huge turnoff. I'd never work at a company like that. I think all you do is end up attracting more people that are prioritizing work-life balance. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you're not going to build a world-class company with a bunch of people that are not working hard. It just doesn't happen. And I know that all of us have the you know, benefit of having worked with hundreds or thousands of companies. And when I think about the types of companies that I would invest my money into, or I'd be proud to be a shareholder of, I don't want those companies chilling out and everyone's on vacation all the time. Of course, there is a happy medium where it can't be all work. I, I get that. I'm not advocating people should have no life. But um, yeah, I, I think that they may get ap more applicants, but they're probably getting worse applicants that don't want to be surrounded by hardcore A players. I'll just bring up an article that was in the Wall Street Journal about what CEOs are getting right and what they're getting wrong in terms of um, you know, the future of the workplace as we're now you know, uh, three years beyond 2020. Um, and I thought it was an article written by Adam Grant, or is an interview with Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist at the Wharton School at, at Penn. Um, and I thought it was something that was really interesting. We, we hear a lot of things about, oh, you know, so-and-so's, you know, requiring employees to come back so many days a week. And it always sounds very authoritarian to me, like it's it's a mandate, so to speak, and I hate that word mandate. Um, and one of the things he suggested to executive leaders wanting to bring people back is instead of just like forcing something down their throat, which is maybe what that leader might want, is instead to take some, take some time and talk to the leaders in your organization, maybe you call it managers, and let them know that, hey, you're excited about this change that's forthcoming that you're going to be implementing, but you're also anticipating some resistance, um, given that maybe your company is four days a week at home or five days a week. And you, as a leader, want to know what it's going to take to motivate them to try this. Um, and you might be surprised with what you find, um, because people are trying to get it right in terms of how they bring people back. But I wonder, 
again, I don't know, but I wonder how many times those leaders are really trying to figure out from the employee what it would it take to have them jump on board um, to try something, and what would it what would it take or what would it entice them to do so? Um, and I think that um, they'll actually then learn what motivates their own team by interviewing them, as opposed to saying, "This is it. You're coming back four days a week. Deal with it. I'll see you on Monday." So I just I share that as a way for if anyone's listening to this and you're trying to think about what might um, help bring your team back together, try it that way versus just simply telling them this is how it's going to be. That's pretty crazy that we need an organizational psychologist at Wharton to tell us maybe we should ask our people what would work. Uh, you know, I, I would I would tell you that every company that I've worked with surveyed their people, and I I think the I think the point in what in what he's getting at is it's not it's not the same to just survey your people. You, there's a right way to do it to get good data, and then there's everybody else because the data that comes out of those interviews or surveys is all over the board. Um, and, and if, if taken on face value, you can get some pretty poor decisions out of it and it, companies then get very scared. So, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult process to go through, to be able to ask the right questions, to get the right results, to follow up properly. And the best companies have done it and they've gotten really good data but the data doesn't necessarily align to with where their management wants to take the company. So what then what do you do? Well, I think that, and I don't, I haven't seen those surveys for any given company, of course, they're internal and probably mostly private, but I wonder, are they asking them, like, do you want to come back or what would be your preferred cadence or do you like working from home? All a million other questions versus we are going to try doing this maybe three, maybe four days what would motivate you to jump on board and try it with us? I don't know if they're asking that question. Maybe they are, but that's a different, I've not heard into hundreds of conversations I've had with executive leaders. I've yet to hear one tell me they're asking their employees, Hey, we're going to do this. What will it take to help you be on board and, and try this with us? I don't know. That's, that's the key question. I don't know is being asked. I'm all for surveying and getting information and doing it in the best possible way. Uh, and since you brought this up, I obviously don't have anything that I can reference right now to reinforce my point. But one of the things that I find funny is all of these studies on the fact that people have no idea what they actually want. And there's this enormous self-reporting bias and what people think that they need to be productive. And they'll say, oh, I'm most productive when I'm doing this and be completely wrong when you actually have a real data source. So part of me actually wonders uh, in certain instances, how effective is this? And how do the how does the self-reporting change over time? Like, there's no point in surveying your entire organization uh, when they may feel completely differently in 90 days, and any of these decisions related to real estate take significantly longer than that to implement generally. See, see, John, this is why we need someone from Wharton's to help figure this out because <laughs> it comes down to human behavior. If you get asked a question, even if you don't like the decision, as long as you feel like you're a part of the solution rather than being told what to do, you have a much more higher likelihood to be a part of the, the solution. Um, so it's, it's the, it's the journey. It's the process that companies go through. It's not the end result uh, because ultimately somebody has to make a decision at the top of the company. Leaders have to lead and you see le leaders leading in very different directions across different industries or different companies. But at the end of the day, you can survey your people all day long, but a leader has to lead and think and think through the data to and make the decision based on that company's culture. Okay, I have a final news story to talk about, and then let's jump into the main topic. So this is a question. Uh, let me set the stage here first. So over the last uh, week or two, we've seen even more announcements of major institutional landlords being in default, mostly for office buildings of uh, large uh, loan pools. Uh, there's a story that came out a couple of days ago about KBS, which is a giant, very reputable landlord being default of a major uh, office loan that they have in Portland. Uh, we talked about Brookfield and downtown LA being in default of two like 50-story high-rise buildings in downtown Los Angeles. Vornado in New York is in default of multiple uh, major office buildings. Then there's this, this same issue that are happening in 
basically every single urban city around the country, right? DC, Sacramento, on and on and on. So we predicted this when we were first starting the show, saying that, hey, in the coming months, there's going to be more and more announcements of office landlords going into default of their mortgages on, on their respective buildings. So my question for you all is, what happens from here, right? Do the lenders cooperate? Do they just foreclose and take over the building? Do these people fight to hold on to their building and contribute equity? So like, what of those scenarios do we think is going to happen? And then also, what are the factors that are going to determine what these lenders do? Like why in one instance would a lender cooperate versus in another instance they would foreclose? I, so if you, for those that were a part of the 2008-2009 financial recession, crisis recession, whatever you want to call it, there was this exact thing was going on, um, but the fundamentals of the market were different. And so what I mean by that is back then, there were a lot of landlords that uh, were facing default for all sorts of reasons. And there were companies started with private money, family office money, with the thesis that, hey, we're going to buy buildings for pennies in the dollar because we're going to buy them out of, on the courthouse steps, for, for lack of better words. It didn't happen because the lenders would renegotiate the loan terms for the landlord because they didn't want the real estate because they're like, we don't know how to run real estate. It's, we don't want to have to go into foreclosure. Um, we'll renegotiate the terms, give you a new lease on life for lack of better words. And off you go. Um, I think now it's less likely to happen because the fundamentals of the office market are so different back in 2008, 2009, there was no such thing as work from home. I mean, maybe for a few, but it wasn't something that was even talked about. So, we knew there was going to be demand. Maybe it had softened given the recession we were in, but it was going to snap back at some point. And it did across the country. Now is different. Now these landlords, even when offered by their lender to renegotiate the loan terms, still don't want it. They have non-recourse debt. They can walk away. Maybe they lose some equity. Their, their partner is really hosed because oftentimes these operators have put in a minimal amount of equity and they're, they're, they're uh, equity part, it brings in most of the money. So, but my point is, is that I've seen cases, I'm working on a transaction right now in Portland, Oregon, uh, for a full floor tenant where this exact thing happened. I know the landlord, I asked them about it. And I said, what about, are you really walking away? And they're like, yeah, if it's, if we were, the lender was going to do something for us. And we said, we're not even interested. The market's so dire there, especially where this building is located and all the other things that factor into that office market, um, they're walking away. So I think we're going to see more of it than we did, say, in 2008, 2009. What, which is really interesting, because what you're saying is that it's not actually the lender's uh, unwillingness to cooperate and restructure the loan. It's the owner, landlord, equity holder of the building saying, hey, I don't, I don't even want this. It's not worth my time. There's no way we're going to be able to restructure something that allows me to make any money here. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that's going to be the standard for every office building in America, but I'm seeing that happen right now, where even when offered different terms for their debt, they still don't want it. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure it's all that different, right? A cycle is a cycle. They're always a little bit different. They catch us by surprise, behaves, there's some differences to be sure. And yet, you know, will these lenders um, renegotiate terms? Look, they're going to need a quality operator. They have an asset. If they're going to take over ownership, it's going to be a, a simple, I think there's two parts to the equation. It's quality and quantity. Um, is it a quality operator? You know, the, the, not every developer, owner, investor is going to simply walk away. They've got reputational risk. You know, they've been managing the asset. If they can point to good decision making, they've been a good operator over time. And it really is just this pandemic effect, some beyond their control, almost a force majeure. I think they could make the case to the lender, we just need to restructure the debt and we'll continue to execute and operate like we've always been doing. I think that's going, and then you do the math, quality and quanti quantity and quality. On the quantity side, do the math. Like how upside down are we? And um, you know, if you've got a good operator and it wasn't their fault, are you, is it gonna be, are you gonna lose more money by going through a foreclosure process, operating the asset, in the interim, going and marketing the building, finding a new operator at a discount to come in, you might just say, let's go with the devil we know and we like this operator, it wasn't their fault. Well, so I think that's that's the case for good real estate. 
okay? There's good real estate and there's bad real estate. I think back in 2019, we saw the market, in, so there's so much demand for quality product. There was so much money out there that needed to be placed and get to work that people were making decisions based on a market that was continuing to go up at a 45 degree angle, okay? That didn't happen as we know. And so I think for good real estate, there's a, a long-term play there. And I think you're right, John. I think things will kind of settle out and they won't act, actually just hand the keys back, so to speak. But I can tell you firsthand, I saw buildings purchased in 19 that even then I was scratching my head. And now I don't care what price it sells at. There's buildings that are so inferior to the quality buildings in the market that I, I don't know anyone that would actually take it down. Yeah, I, I know my... <laughs> You have to you have to look at a couple of different things. Like there's it's the type of debt that's on the asset too, right? Many of this debt is cross collateralized. Many of the debt is is put into securities. It's CMBS debt. It's you know stuff gets really messy. If you're looking at a one to one relationship with a large institutional lender and a trophy asset, it's a big loan. That's kind of one. Set that to the side. There's a process for that. Then you've got this other stuff where there could be multiple. Um, entities or multiple companies on the debt stack, which ones are in the money, which are the money, who forecloses. I mean, I saw a stat just recently that that uh, the refinancing of CMBS debt is off like 85% year over year. I mean, I saw the, 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 there's a security out there called CMBSX and six, CMBSX6 is malls, CMBSX... 13 is is office it's it's closely correlated to the office product the malls and the office product the spread between those securities is like nothing it was it was a massive spread a year ago right so the financial markets are coming at this in a way that and that's and that's um, focused on shorting the market sorry so that the financial industry is coming at this in a lot of different ways. And some lenders are just going to want to clean their balance sheets up and just get out of the business. I mean, remember GE Capital? How's, how's GE Capital's real estate lending on, right? Remember that in, in 2008 or 2009? It's gone. Like it disintegrated overnight. It was Bear Stearns in the, in the real estate lending world, right? So I think depending upon uh, the type of debt, uh, who the who the the entities are? It, you're going to see a massive shift, and you're going to see a lot of a lot to clean up in the next 24 months. Okay, let's jump into the main topic for today. How has the role of a company's real estate department and the decisions that they make for their organization? How has that changed over the last five years? Uh, I think this is a really interesting topic because running an effective real estate department has probably never been more difficult than it is today. It's gone from a, a organization within a company that is, hey, find a space, figure out where we should be located, renegotiate this lease. And it's become a lot less um, of just the tactical execution and much more of the strategy and what's the role that real estate plays in an organization. And at the same time as that subtle shift has been happening, there's also been a ton more opportunities in technology, co-working, portfolio optimization, and all of these different factors that have emerged that now have to be considered by companies that seek to do the best possible job with their real estate. So I'd love to hear what you all think on this topic. And uh, John, I know that you wanted to lead us off here. So take it away. Yeah, thanks for that, Tucker. Uh, you know, interesting from... I just happen to have a couple um, corporate real estate directors that I know that I would consider friends who are currently out of work. Like, really? Uh, the company's made some decisions. The job isn't what it was before. And they decided they didn't need these people in those roles. Um, okay, so that might be a microcosm. Maybe that's not happening across the board. Because, for example, you know, Google's still out spending money. They spent $9.5 billion on office space and data centers in 2022. So, yeah, what is the role of the director today and how is it changing? I also think there's this interesting time lag effect. Real estate by definition is a long-term decision and a long-term decision cycle. 
you know, the, the, 20, the $9.5 billion that Google spent in 2022 was envisioned in like 2018 and negotiated in 2019 and planned in 2020. So are we really seeing the effects of the change yet? Or is this just the tip of the iceberg? Um, I think the role of this, the CRE is changing. I think some folks are being, you know, remote worked out of a job, uh, but I'm not sure that's going to be true. I'll, I'll just say one more thing. We really need to separate office space from the rest of commercial real estate. Like office space, especially in urban center, metropolitan major markets, it's a train wreck. And I don't think that's broadly true of the rest of commercial real estate. It's uniquely problematic. Um, so if that was your job is managing office space, I think there, you, you don't necessarily have job security today. Yeah, that's a good point. Tucker, you, um, I think you hit on the kind of three points I was going to lead off with. It's, it's, a, it's a person or a position that's much more strategic versus tactical. I know I started in this business more than five years ago. Um, the, the real estate director's job was to go with the brokers or go into markets and help find space, you know, be, be transactional. That has gone away. That is outsourced. That's a commodity. That is, that is something that the best do it from behind a desk, but their job is internal to the company so they can make the right decision before we even enter the market and start looking at space. The second is centralized decision-making really have, Good corporate real estate directors, the position today, they have much more power and authority around centralized decision making. Uh, before it was very spread out, they would they would have to go and it wasn't this edict or this this control over the process that I see today. And the third is it is massively supported by strong technology and data. You know, it was I worked on accounts where you get you know like hey you won the business here's a couple boxes of leases that's and and we don't have a system you know our admins are the ones that we have a spreadsheet maybe each business unit has their own leases we just got them to send us copies back to the to the to the you know to the main office so it's it's a it's a role that has become just critical to the, the strategic decision making of the company and the the ones that are doing it really well and I've got some clients that are there are just so valuable in helping the company understand what they have and where they're going from a space perspective. Totally agree. I mean, the data is the biggest thing I've seen change over the past five, 10 years. Um, it's not just, you know, okay, we need an office in this city. You know, there's a lot of data and um, thought that goes around where you're located. And that can be closer to a customer. It could be closer to where your employees are coming from. It could be commute patterns could be amenities, a million different things. And all those typically go into the decision to begin with. And then you filter based on a weighted scoring. Um, occupancy too. I mean, I run across companies where they've got, like, to your point, a box full of leases and don't even know how what the occupancy levels are for those offices. Well, knowing how saturated an office is, or, or maybe not, maybe it's just there's three people going into an office of 10,000 feet there's an opportunity to mine for savings, right? Like if we can, if we can adjust the portfolio size based on the actual demand versus just going, well, we have 10,000 feet in Washington, DC, but I don't really know why. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity for savings. And then costs, you know, people are being way more strategic, marking rents to market and trying to figure out again, where can we mine for savings? Um, the, the data is so key in really running the portfolio today, whereas before, for lack of better words, people were writing it off a spreadsheet and just being reactionary to expiration dates and trigger dates. Now we're spending so much more time trying to be thoughtful around how do we manage costs and how do we look for savings using a myriad of different opportunities. And so I think as real, directors of real estate, those that I work with, um, I see the best of them really being afforded a tremendous amount of power and autonomy within their organization to really run the real estate and own it. Um, and then their performance is based upon the success of the portfolio as measured typically by the CFO. So good points, Brian. I totally agree on, on most of that stuff. That's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, Oh, you hit, hit the nail on the head. Uh, another big piece I'm seeing is like, look, the, 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 
the planning, the strategic planning around resiliency of the portfolio, right? So what happens if there's an outbreak of something in New York City and this is where our trading desk is? What happens if if there's um, a great example, a client that I wasn't working on, but it was a client uh, of mine, the war breaks out in, in the Ukraine. What do they do? Real estate had a big piece of that, right? And that, if you don't have the right team policies, procedures, you don't have buy-in from the top, how do you execute on a plan to get your people out, to get your IP out, right? So so the, the real estate director is a global position if it's a global company, but is it is a C-suite directly to, linked to the C-suite position where I think five years ago and longer, it was very tactical, really kind of connected to the business units to, to solve their problems rather than solve an organizational uh, uh, uh problem or an organizational uh, approach to all of their real estate. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, um, I'm a big Nordic skier cross country and uh, I love a certain brand of skis that I won't name that has all of their manufacturing occurs in Ukraine, all of it. So get this, they come out with this brand new ski this year. It's the hottest, most talked about ski in, in the, in the world of Nordic skiing. How many pairs do you think got shipped to the United States? I won't, I'm not asking for an answer, I'll tell you. 100. 100 pairs got shipped to the United States for the 2022-2023 ski season. Now, think about that. There, there's a lot more than 100 Nordic skiers in the nation. Um, and what a missed opportunity for revenue on this ski that was highly promoted for all sorts of reasons I won't get into. But um, they had no resiliency for their manufacturing. It was all in one country and got decimated and I'm sure they'll figure out how to offset that, that loss, but what a, what a mess. Um, Important follow-up. So, Owen, did you get your pair? I did, but that's because I'm a very, I'm very tenacious and I, I made friends with their, the head of the U S distribution facility, which I won't say where it is, but um, yeah. But the point is again, like think about that. There was no backup for, and that couldn't, that didn't have to be manufacturing. That could have been a data center. It could have been a, a call center, it could have been whatever it is. Um, if I'm a CFO and I'm giving and I'm having my annual review with my real estate director, I want to know for my mission critical critical facilities, no matter what they support or do, do we have a backup? What if if what if that scenario happens? Um, I had a client that sent me a photo at four in the morning last year. Um, their facility in Arkansas got obliterated by a tornado. It was a 450,000 square foot distribution facility. I mean, absolutely obliterated. Thankfully, it happened in the middle of the night. Nobody was killed. Um, but I saw an aerial photo. It was actually on the news channel at their 6 a.m. news. Um, and thankfully, they had other facilities to support it. But those things can happen. And are people planning for it? I don't know. You should be. On the subject of distribution centers, I mean, first, that's insane about the tornado think all of us uh, dread those text messages or phone calls of, hey, building burned down in a fire. And I think that a lot of brokers uh, sort of ignore this like damage and destruction provision in a lease thinking, ah, that'll never happen. And like odds are when you've done thousands of leases, like it is going to happen very sadly. And um, in you know Southern California in particular, with all of the terrible fires we've had over the years, I've had clients that I've had uh, not like a full loss where the building's like just, you know, a pile of rubble, but where the building has burnt, been burned so dramatically that it's going to be six months, 12 months before the building's operational. And the landlord very quickly tells you, hey, uh, you know, we're releasing you from the lease. Insurance is going to cover this. And then, you know, you've got a client that's saying, I need a facility literally tomorrow. <laughs> and you're running around like a crazy person trying to find a building. So but anyways, on the on the topic of distribution, do you think that directors of real estate that are dealing with logistics, warehousing, things like that, how important is it for them to really understand what's happening with autonomy, whether it be autonomous trucking, autonomous shipping, whether it be the ability to eventually have forklift operators in a warehouse controlled remotely by somebody in VR? Like, how important do you think it is for a director of real estate to be really following what this technology is, the impact it ultimately has on labor costs? I'm curious what you all think. I think it's important just to be aware of it because you're going to get asked the question, right? Like, I think leaders in your company are going to ask you as a director of real estate, hey, have we thought about this? 
and there's going to come a point, it's not today necessarily, but to your point, Tucker, like running forklifts from a location 2,000 miles away via VR, like that's going to happen. Is it here today for your average user? Probably not. <laughs> um, for some, maybe. Uh, but I think the best people are always looking to understand where the future is and then you know, decide as a team, when did they make that jump? Um, it's, I, I think that's because if I'm, if I'm tasked with running real estate, I've always wanted to look for, you know, understand what's best. How can we improve, um, to the extent that we decide to, to execute on that plan of the day? Great. But if not, let's at least afford us the ability to prepare for it versus being reactionary and going, Oh shoot, our top 20 competitors are already there. We're not even, we're not just not there already, but we haven't even started the planning because as you know, these things take time, you know, with real estate decisions, sometimes impacting um, subsequent decisions for 10 years in some cases, uh, I think you need to be mindful of what's coming and then better plan for that in addition to the obligation that you're to commit to in the real estate. One of the things that I find so interesting as a thought exercise is you think about all of these advancements are, that are coming and what the role is in a logistics company in the long run. Right, we could theoretically have buildings that are put in a location that uh, before they'd make no sense since you couldn't get the right labor there. Uh, maybe you could, maybe the drayage and the logistics, transportation costs, and all that make a ton of sense. But you're just never going to be able to staff this type of warehouse. You're never going to have, uh, you know, a forklift operator that can work. Maybe the labor of getting product there maybe it subtly changes where all of a sudden uh, the cost of a truck driver isn't as severe. I mean, there's, there's really interesting things to, to start considering, you know, how would the economics of a warehouse change if a ton of the robotics were um, outsourced uh, e either to like a, a robot or it was done in VR by somebody controlling a machine that is in the Philippines. I mean, it's really fascinating to think about, how all of these things can change. Brian, it looks like you've got something to add. Yeah, I think I'm going to frame this in the context of the original question, which was a real estate, a, a director of real estate today versus five years ago. I think, you know, I think take, take directors of real estate whose portfolio is only industrial space. Park that on the side because I think this is, it's a different answer. But far and away, my clients have a mixed use of portfolios, right? So they're companies that either make a product um, and they have to have distribution associated with it. It's an office client that has some sort of a, uh, I don't know, a, a use that's that's in a logistics or distribution type building. Um, the to me, the the question you asked is no different than should we be inside the manufacturing uh, process to understand how we automate that. Should we be in the room determining how we get better security of our buildings? No, that the role of the, of the director of real estate to me is above that. There has to be really good subject matter subject matter experts in these verticals because it's so it's moving so quickly and the the marketplace is advancing so fast that you don't want your real estate director inside your manufacturing line telling your manufacturing manager how to run, run a process. And you certainly don't want the real estate director inside the warehouse telling a logistics manager how to build his warehouse. But they have to be aware of those because they help, they probably control their budgets or have a part of it. Just like the security lead, understanding what's the best to secure the locations that ultimately become part of the fortification or the, the hardening of a site. The, the real estate director, to me, sits above those verticals. It helps be the liaison to the leadership, build the budgets, understand costs, payback, help do the financials of all this, because it rolls up to a real estate budget in a lot of cases. But they're not, they're not subject matter experts in any of those areas. They need really good people on their team or in teams at the company that they help pull together to make quality decisions for the organization. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think my point only is that you can be a much better liaison when you understand the technology that's happening that's driving this change. And the best directors of real estate are going to be really knowledgeable, not only about business and if they're a venture-backed company, the state of venture capital and how these financings work and everything that goes on in their organization, the smarter and more in touch you can be with the core business and all of the different functions of the business the better you're going to be able to do your job. I mean, one of the things that 
I think is a surprise to new brokers that I work with is, you know, that start at, at, at our company, they always are asking like, Hey, I'm starting in three months. What should I be focused on in the meantime? And I always tell them, be as smart as you possibly can be about business at large as possible. That's the most valuable thing you can do before you start your brokerage career is just to read a ton, listen to the right podcast, be really smart, really knowledgeable. I think that's ultimately the difference between like a very good broker and an extraordinary broker is the ability to understand all of these different industries and how to relate real estate to that industry and that business's business objectives. And the same is true for a director of real estate. And in many ways, you could argue it is even more important for a director of real estate to really understand uh, the core business and everything that goes goes on and how changes in a manufacturing line are going to long-term impact the company's real estate portfolio, for example. So I actually have uh, firsthand experience real-time with two different companies, corporate real estate directors, uh, large portfolio logistics companies. On the one hand, uh, one real estate manager who's building out a robotics distribution warehouse, like robotics is today, uh, that's you know table stakes to understand robotics and, and uh, be able to deploy that. Uh, at the same time, they're leaning into EV fleet charging and wanting to understand how that's going to look, wanting to build some of that infra- infrastructure into the new building. Um, on the other hand, is another uh, corporate real estate director of a very large logistics portfolio who says to me, Look, we're busy. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm so busy managing the portfolio. And oh, by the way, we make so much money in our core business that I want to make sure I'm not getting distracted by something that's coming next. Like I'm dealing with now. I'll deal with next when it becomes now. So on the one hand, yes, to be aware, to be leaning in. On the other hand, realizing that these folks are just swamped with the, you know, with these very large portfolios. And, and the business is making a lot of money, so they don't want to be chasing all every new thing. I've seen both sides of that equation. It's a really good point, right? And I think that that's an art of every single person working in the professional world is how do you focus on what's important and also urgent? And if you're sitting there saying, hey, we need to make sure that we're factoring in the construction costs to provide electric vehicle charging infrastructure for the future of semi trucks that are autonomous and electric, or maybe only electric. I mean, the electric vehicles, like we are there, like that's arrived. If you're if you're signing a five ten year logistics lease and you're not thinking about infrastructure for trucks to be able to charge, that could be a extremely costly error. So that's something that is here now that I personally would think not paying any attention to that, or at least considering it based on what your business is doing is sort of negligent for a director of real estate, but focusing on how does autonomous trucks change our warehouses today, I think that we're still too early for that to be like urgent and important. It's it's important, but not urgent, something that people should have in the back of their mind. And whether you're an office, retail, industrial, or across all those different asset product types of real estate, regardless of your role, you need to be thinking about what are the things that I need to prioritize today and strategize on in conjunction with the day-to-day execution of managing the real estate portfolio. I would challenge the group. I I love that uh, box of urgent versus important. Um, And I would challenge the group to think of what is it in the commercial real estate space, for example, with a logistics company that would be urgent, but not important. And what is it that would be important, but not urgent? It really might shed some light on things that people could be should be paying attention to. And I'll give this example. Uh, I always use this where for me, the uh, urgent but not important is the phone ringing where you have to get up and interrupt your family having dinner at the table to go answer a sales call. That was urgent, the ringing of the phone, not important. What's the equivalent in the commercial real estate space? Estoppels. They're always, they're always urgent, but they're really not that important. <laughs> Until you get one done wrong. Until you get it wrong, because they do supersede the underlying lease. People should be aware of that. I have clients that didn't understand that for years, that if you state something in an estoppel, it supersedes the lease that it sits on top of. But it is typically not very urgent. I mean, not very important to you because it's it's for the landlord, but it is urgent because there's timelines in the lease to do it. So 
first thing that popped in my mind. John, I really like this idea. And I think that it could just be a independent podcast episode because there's so much to dig into here. And I don't want to uh, marginalize your your question with an immediate response because it, it it's really a thoughtful question that deserves a thoughtful answer. So I'm going to reserve my response for maybe episode six or seven or 50, depending on when we get to it. Uh, one, you don't one, think my answer was thoughtful? <laughs> no, is that I, what you're saying? I, I do. Estoppels, <laughs> estoppels are important for sure. Uh, I'm impressed that you came up with something so good so fast. Except but, I think you said they weren't important. They were urgent but not important. You might want to... <laughs> <laughs> I think that they are very important. Um, but like you said, uh, I, I guess they... I guess it depends what your time scale of urgent is, right? If you have 10 days to respond to an estoppel, maybe it's not urgent uh, day one, but at some point, obviously urgent, uh, particularly if the estoppel is assumed to be correct if you don't respond. So anyways, really, uh, really good, quick answer. Um, one of the questions that, that I'd love to talk about a little bit is, what do you all view the role of co-working in the modern real estate portfolio? Like what do directors of real estate for office space or portfolios that contain office space, what do they need to be thinking about? I have a client that leases a lot of co-working and for them, it's, um, it's the ability to be more nimble, uh, with locations that they anticipate significant growth or vice versa, maybe potentially getting smaller. Um, I also have it being used as a supplement to cases where they have particular teams that just aren't fully back yet. Um, and they've yet to maybe require um, some sort of cadences to go into the office. And so it affords them the ability to have a place to, to work if there's a teammate that doesn't have a good work from home environment um, and be able to go in. And then third, it's cases where maybe they don't even have enough people to justify a physical op- office, but it's a place for the team to get together. Because the best co-working spaces not only provide space to work, but they provide really great amenity space to schedule meetings as a team. And so, for example, I've got a client who has an area uh, on the East Coast where there's a lot of sales reps. And those sales reps, by and large, are in the car five days a week making calls to meeting with clients and prospects. But they do need to get together to share ideas, to talk about the the past week's work and initiatives that the company might be having with new products or bringing to market, et cetera. Where do you do that? And they tell me that they do not want to do it over Zoom. Um, They need to be together. And so they're using co-working for those cases. So I think it's a good way to supplement um, what what might have otherwise been 10 years ago as permanent offices um, with co-working because it gives you the flexibility. And if if all of a sudden needs change, well, typically these terms are a year at most or maybe month to month even. So uh, it gives you a chance to be very nimble, whereas other leases, as you guys have all been a part of, can be five to 10 years and um, typically uh, gives you very few uh, options to get out if you need to correct. Yeah, the role of co-working has changed a lot over the last, call it decade. I mean, WeWork was started in in 2010, but obviously they had a, a slow initial ramp before they just exploded and you know started growing so quickly. When you think about when the early locations of WeWork was opened on the West Coast, I mean, it probably was 2014, 2015. So we're not that far off of a window where it's like, hey, co-working literally didn't exist unless you were going into a Regis or a more traditional executive suite, which up until the advent of WeWork, I mean, the idea that a company like Google or Salesforce might have, uh, you know, 50 person office in a smaller, uh, you know, city, and that their whole team would work in like a suite within a co-working space that didn't really exist. It was more individual two, three, four person offices max and this enterprise approach to co-working didn't exist. So I think that there's been a little bit of this whipsaw within co-working where you saw all of these giant companies uh, having a generally a portion of their real estate portfolio that would be comprised of co-working space. And the idea was, hey, this is, these are flexible, you know, six month, one year leases. And if five or 10% of our entire real estate portfolio are rolling every six, 12 months and are really easy to extend or renew. And we don't have to deal with security and staffing and audiovisual and a million other things that come in, um, you know, with leasing space, that's a big win. But 
I think what's changed is that the amount of sublease space on the market today for office space throughout the country is so incredibly high that you can go to the vast majority of these subleases that might have five years, 10 years of term left and say, hey, look, we're only interested on a 24-month lease. And the vast majority of those people are going to take that deal or of, of the sublandlords are going to strongly consider that deal. And the cost of this sublease space, I mean, I'm going through this right now on a, on a transaction uh, where we looked at sublease space and we also looked at a, at a WeWork. And these are like large WeWorks, you know, 10,000 square foot plus WeWorks that can fit, you know, 80, 100 plus people. And in this case, WeWork was literally two to three times the cost of a comparable quality other building. And that's, that's adjusting for things like janitorial being included and coffee being included and community being included and all that. Just the cost of the real estate, I mean, they're looking to get a market price on the real estate, whereas these sub-landlords are competing with dozens of other subleases and have no pricing power and are just trying to move the space. So I think that there's going to be a lot less co-working space that's utilized by companies that uh, instead opt to go and lease sublease space at a fraction of the cost with similar quality. Yeah, I, don't, I think you're right that there's going there's going to be a reduction in the demand for co-working space. But I think co-working has proven itself to be a, a, a very key piece into the puzzle for a large organization. One, remember, all leases under a year are off the balance sheet. So companies don't have to put it on the balance sheet if, if the term is under a year, which is important to a lot of organizations. Uh, secondly, the flexibility, what you talked about. Third, when you're, when you're a large organization and you put your, your team into co-working because it's a test, it's a ramp, it's a place to hire people, there's a sense of uh, a temporariness to it, right? We're going to be here for a certain period of time. We have to hit these goals and objectives. We have to ramp to these numbers. We have to do... So it's an easy way to get your people to go in and go out if, if you don't hit the metrics that you want. And if you go in and you spend the money on IT to bring your own um, switch in, your own servers, you set up the, a, a sublease, it just feels from the, from the impression that I get from my clients, it just feels more permanent, even though it's a short-term sublease. That's, that's a larger organizational uh, approach, I think, to why co-working is so much easier to plug in and plug out, unplug. Let me just clarify my position on co-working real quick. And then, Owen, I know that you want to add something here. Um, I, I agree. Co-working is here to stay. It's incredibly valuable. I do think that it is funny when there are times where people will make fun of WeWork and all that. And I compare WeWork in many senses to these uh, heavily venture capital subsidized grocery delivery services, right? It's like WeWork has been this soft bank subsidized company for the majority of its existence where companies can go and get a great service offering from a company that is losing money, burning billions of dollars of money to deliver a product at a lower cost. That's completely changed that now that they're a public company that is focused on making money. Prices have gone up. There's more corporate governance and all that. All that being said, co-working is 100% here to stay. It's a very important part of the uh, real estate portfolio ecosystem and will remain so. The only point that, that I want to clarify, Brian, is that I think that there is a segment of companies that are looking in the one to two year lease basis that go, oh, we've got to go to co-working. No, it doesn't make sense to furnish a space on a direct basis. Doesn't make, make sense to spend tenant improvement money. And those companies now have a very unique opportunity given that the sublease inventory in the country is the highest it's ever been in history. They now are, WeWork is now competing with a very distressed uh, sublease market that has the highest inventory ever, ever, of which a lot is furnished and cabled and ready to be occupied and will provide very flexible lease terms. And that competition largely didn't exist until COVID. And I think that that puts enormous pressure on WeWork and these other co-working providers to be able to do a great job uh, in terms of financial performance over time. Yeah. Tucker, you actually said a lot of what I was going to say, so kudos to you and like minds think alike. But um, let me give you a real-world example, okay? I've got a client who went full remote during COVID, okay? They got rid of their lease. They got rid of their furniture. They have nothing. And they don't have an office, but they want an office. And they need space for 10 people. 
and they're trying to get people back, but they think, well, I'll just call WeWork because they've got furnished space that's on demand. Logical thinking. But the reality is, I, when I showed them what was available by way of sublease, they're overpaying because these co-working spaces have a business model where they have to pay rent, and the rents are based on pre-COVID leases they signed. And it turned out that all the co-working, and I'm not just picking on WeWork, I'm talking about all the co-working spaces in Seattle, were two to three times more than we could get for a fully furnished sublease, what they call plug and play, where we could move in tomorrow. I mean, tr tricked out space, beautiful. The only thing it lacked was an actual person sitting at a reception desk to greet you when you walk into the co-working space. Given that it's a sublease, there is no person, of course. That's easy to solve for, especially when the sublease is, is you know, two to three times less expensive than that which they would have otherwise paid for co-working. So yeah, like, again, co-working isn't going anywhere. The sublease um, availability is not going to put an end to co-working. Um, but I think now is an interesting time where, to my earlier point, these co-working co spaces were signed at terms that were all pre-COVID. They were 2018, 2019 leases, and they can't compete against the subleases who are just throwing space on the market for 30, 40, 50% on the dollar. Like I have a friend who's who's moved on, but he used to get sat down. He used to tell me stories. He ran a building for WeWork in New York City, and he had a ten thousand dollar a month budget just just for food and beverage for for one large technology company who who occupied the whole building. Uh, and he used to get sat down and say like like you didn't spend your ten thousand this month. What happened? Like. They weren't eating any of the sushi. They weren't eating any of the food we put out. We're like, you still have to buy it. You still have to buy it. You need to spend all of this budget on that client. And, you know, they, it's just not the way it is anymore. So, like, the small things get unfixed. You know, the Wi-Fi goes down. And, and, if, and if you're spending, spending a premium, you, those, are, those things become really important because you expect more for what you're, you're spending. I was going to say, I think, Tucker, you make a really interesting point where you say that the um, co-working has to compete with all this uh, sublease inventory. And I want to make the uh, equivalent point, um, the opposite point. The sublease space has to compete with the co-working. You know, the, the, the sublease assignments, I always use the analogy of a melting ice cube, right? They need to get it done and they need to get it done quickly. If they make the mistake of holding out for a higher rental rate, and they lose the benefit of a deal they could have done six months earlier, like you never get that money back. It's that melting ice cube concept. So most sub lessors sort of need to make the next good deal they have an opportunity to make. And they need to recognize that they're competing with the, the, the co-working space and uh, negotiate more aggressively. That's yeah, that's why these great deals are to be found on these sub-lease spaces because they it's a melting ice cube. They need to get the next deal done that they can. Okay, we are coming up on the end of the episode. There's a lot of topics that we haven't had an opportunity to dive into just due to time. Maybe those are future episode topics uh, you know, for the next dozen that we've got going. But um, in closing, I'd love to go around and have each of us top, talk about a topic that maybe is something you're passionate about that we haven't been able to get to as a group, and we'll close out the podcast. Yeah, I'd love to talk about lease audits. I mean, maybe it's for a deeper dive for another podcast, but um, we have a lot of clients where they've engaged a lease auditor to review 2022 reconciliations. And it's amazing what, we're, what we have been finding and seeing, especially in light of what we went through and some expenses that were passed through to, our, to clients of ours that were just not even close to being in compliance with the master lease document. So the message I would get across to real estate directors is how important it is to have a really strong lease auditor uh, that's reviewing CAM expenses, reconciliation statements, and 2023 estimates. Okay. Oh, and I'm going to piggyback on what you say about lease audits, and I'm going to mention lease administration um, because you know properly done lease administration is about so much more than just critical date management, and it can't be done in an Excel file. Uh, to, to properly administer an entire portfolio of real estate leases and have the accurate data, have the commencement memorandums, have the, it's, it, it, when done right, it's a super valuable tool and it's not always done right. John, what do you think the difference is between done right and uh, done Definitely the details. You know, watching the lease administration team and the 
digging in and asking the companies to provide the supporting background documentation. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, we, we have we have that file. Well, no, no, I need to actually see the file. I need to read the file and confirm the, the language in that document and make sure it all marries up to what we have on file. Detail. Yeah, you think you think of the cost of missing a tenant improvement allowance expiration date or a termination notice or missing an expansion option or signing an estoppel wrong. I mean, all of these things that are so much more than just managing critical dates in a lease. Like managing critical dates is sort of the elementary version of lease administration that I think many companies do. And the much more like A plus perfectly executed lease administration is probably comprised of tracking another 50 data points aggressively, you know, monthly and reporting on them in an easy to follow way. And for the companies that aren't already doing that, that have, you know, call it more than 20 locations, it's really difficult to <laughs> optimize the portfolio if you're not already on top of that. That's probably the first and most basic building block of having a well-run real estate portfolio is excellent lease administration, which would include regularly auditing the leases from an operating expense standpoint, as Owen was talking about, too. <clears throat> There's been so much money poured into prop tech, right? There's a lot of very cool, innovative products out there. But at the end of the day, it's not about, in my mind, it's not about the technology. I mean, there's really bad technology, but take that out of the picture. There's a large pool of, of capable technology. It's about the people behind it because data is only as good as the people that are inputting it and checking the inputs and staying on top of it. And having a good system in place, either internal or external, to make sure, like you, just, you have to assume that every single location has one new event Something You get something about that location every month. So tw every lease, assume 12 different events a year, multiply that by the number of leases. There has to be somebody inputting that or your data is out of, uh, out of date, out, out of um, accuracy a little bit each month. And at some point, how do you rely on it? And that's the, the companies I see do it right of. I've really focused on how do we, how do we create process and how do we create resiliency and how we... Um, and how we manage the data and the technology is the technology. Well, most of it works. Yeah, smart. One thing that I've observed is that the best companies have the ability to not only manage the day-to-day -day of their real estate portfolio well, which is done by having the right partners, staffing the, the real estate department properly and all that, but they also make sure that they're leaving time to look for opportunities to go sort of zero to one in on certain locations that might not be optimized. And in order to do that, you need to understand what your occupancy levels are at every single location. You need to understand what the mark to market rents are at every single location, what the strategy is at each location. And that's a lot of information depending on the size of your portfolio to really understand. But if you understand those things and you've built a little bit of excess time or a little bit of slack in your schedule or your real estate department's uh, time bandwidth, then you have the opportunity to find millions or tens of millions of dollars worth of savings uh, that could impact the 2023 P&L or certainly impact 2024. And it's one of those things where if you're just so busy executing all the time that you don't really have time to do the strategic, uh, really high value part of, of this role. And Brian, I mean, when you were earlier talking about some of the clients that you work with, and I know in particular, you have a, a couple of clients that you just think their directors of real estate are world-class, like truly the best real estate directors that exist on the planet. And I, I would suspect that the difference between those and someone that's mediocre is that their day isn't running around putting out one fire to another, right? They have time to sit back and be strategic, look for opportunities and figure out how to really make orders of magnitude impact on the uh, on the quality of the real estate portfolio and you, you you can't do that if you don't have time and you don't have time unless you've built the right systems and structure in order to have that time De dead on i mean the it's dead dead on and and i tell you they it's not a vendor uh client relationship it is tr a true partnership they partner with really good people and really good organizations across the different verticals of their job and they've created a system and a process that that people care. You look. If I'm sitting in a meeting with 
with the director of real estate running it, and you, there's different. There's construction there. There's there's real estate there. Like the, that, my you I know mean, my team. They, we we care about the delivery of the product for our client because we're all partners in the room, and and it's it's just a different a different result and a different feeling you get um, than you would if if it is a you know procurement driven process that that drives to the last you know the, the the last signature on a page. It's just a different that that model is uh, it's difficult to get the best results when the focus is so much driven on. Um, in the wrong place, if you ask me. Yeah, well said, and great points by everyone. With that, let us conclude episode five of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can email podcast at thecreinsider.com. Uh, thanks so much for uh, the emails that we received, the positive feedback, the questions, the comments. Uh, we're really grateful for those that tune in every week and listen to the four of us chat. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with episode six. Thanks so much.